It's Friday, September 29th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So lots going on coming from the heavens where I speak to you today from Brooklyn, but I want to get to it by talking about a song. This is a little bit of a musical episode of the gist. And this song is a song you know. You know what comes next. I'm going to sing the first part. You will be able to fill in the next part. You could do it mentally or aloud. Here we go. Oh, we, oh. And then you know what comes next. It's oh, we, oh. Right? Oh, we, oh. Oh, we, oh. And it comes from, of course, the big short. No, it comes from the Wizard of Oz. Let's play that as Scarecrow, Tin Man, et al. Look at the Winkies marching into the witch's castle. Waking enough as it is. Who's them? Who's them? My point is, you know the song, you knew where it comes from, no one knows the name of the song. It could be the most known song that no one knows the name of. I looked it up, it might be called The March of the Winkies, but when you play The March of the Winkies from the soundtrack of The Wizard of Oz, it doesn't have that part. So it is, it could be a nameless song. George Carlin had a bit about Tarara Boomdier. His conjecture was that no one knows the next words. Okay, fine, I give you that. But this all leads me up to... I'm not much of a musician, I'm more of a newsman or a uh, broadcaster with a capital B and that rhymes with P and that stands for professionalism, ladies and gentlemen. But there is a sentence in so many newscasts, once every week, maybe once every 10 days. And you know what the words mean? You know what they're meant to convey. You just don't know what to do about them. Here now, those words. You can see we have a flash flood warning now in effect. I hear this all the time. And since I'm not a member of the Fisher Folk community, nor do I live in a low-lying area, I never know what the action item is. Well, today, uh, I guess the action was thrust upon me and all of us in my suburb of Brooklyn, because maybe you've seen some of the clips online or the news, or you live in Brooklyn, and it is a deluge. Coming down in proverbial sheets, I would say, many ducks uh, like waterfowl fled the area saying, This is far too taxing. They are uh, putting together some money for a community arc. Pairs, two by two, all the Brooklyn pairs. You've got a pair of Williamsburg hipsters. You've got a pair of Lubavitchers. You've got a pair of guys from Canossi and Bay Ridge. You know, the kind of guys who like to just pull out all the syllables on Bay Ridge. You got all of Brooklyn heading for this arc because man, are the floodwaters upon us. Now, I have to say, as a... uh, climate realist, as someone who knows these things, I find it very comforting that I am not the kind of person who would associate any one weather activity to global patterns. Unlike most of my friends who tisk and say, extreme weather, it's all about climate change. It's very nice to know that this might have nothing to do with climate change. I mean, it might, you know, a lot of heavy moisture in the air causes it. But we've had a lot of floods before. I think it's mostly about our pretty shitty or fairly shitty infrastructure in this city, thus not sufficiently combating flooding. But like I said, a flood of musical activity on the show today. Before we get to that, in the spiel, I will talk about the responsibility, what it entails to truly support true democracy and representative government. It's more than just the very, very necessary, you would think, de minimis stance of saying that 
using violence to overturn an election result is wrong. But I do think it goes a little bit beyond that. A couple items in the news. We'll get to what I'm talking about. But first, Max Kerman is the lead singer of the Canadian band Arkells. They're a little uh, like Smashing Pumpkins, Talking Heads. No the in the title, Arkells. I have grown to love Arkells. Their new album is called Laundry Pile. And Max is just a great person to talk to. And not just about, what did that song mean? Take me through the key change. Quite a time signature. Both of us kind of hate when you listen to an interview with a musician and you haven't heard, or not even just heard, you haven't really imbibed and learned all the songs on an album. It's not very useful. So we're not going to subject you to that. I thought I'd talk to an excellent raconteur and thinker and philosophizer of culture and music. And I hope you like my discussion. Max Kerman of Arkells up next. You told me, darling, it's time to move on. They were all friendly. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Do I still have a shot in the dark? Do I still have a piece of your heart when broken too? And a million parts, is it too soon? Do I have a piece of your heart? Max Kerman is the lead singer of the rock band Arkells. Their new album is out. It is called and named after uh, the title track. Wait, that might be a tautology. So Laundry Pile is what I'm getting at. It's really like all Arkell stuff. It's great. It's not electric guitar jangling in your face great. It's a little more uh, minor key and ballads and as always deep. Max, welcome back to The Gist. Well, thank you for having me. And as a Gist listener, I want to let anybody listening know that I want to keep this as broad and interesting as possible because sometimes if you have a musician on the show, I don't even listen because that's not why I come to the gist. I come for smarter stuff, you know, and so hopefully we smarter than musicians. Smarter than musicians. So uh, yeah, who was a musician that you didn't listen to? I I couldn't even. I couldn't even remember. But sometimes you know, I come to this show to to learn. So hopefully we can. Right. So I'm going to try teach the people. I'm going to try. So in. During the Battle of Algiers, when Pontecorvo, <laughs> yeah. all right, um, 
I, a pet peeve of mine is when you listen to, and this will happen on NPR and CBC interviews, it will be uh, a band musician, you know or don't know, and they do try to orient you by playing a snippet of the song, but the human brain just doesn't work. You can't hear a part of the song and know what they're talking about. So almost all of the good interviews I've ever heard with musicians have been me going back after I've been into the music, and then a year later or many years later, you listen to that, you know, Terry gross talking to Adele or whatever it was, but only because you know the songs fully does it even make any sense. I I totally agree. I like uh, doing the retrospective after you've listened to the tunes, but I do wonder, this is a very meta uh, conversation here, what are the hooks in an interview like this that would lead someone to listen to a record or a band they're unfamiliar with. So let's let's. Well, I've strategized this. I've strategized Mm -hmm. this a little bit. And I want to ask you a bunch of questions about just doing music in 2023. And then we could use the album as a touchstone and to uh, play out or to demonstrate some examples. But before I even get to that, and this is also part of my strategy, and I probably didn't have to do this with you. I wanted to show you that I listen to and appreciate the album by asking you a couple questions that would show my knowledge of the album. So I'll start with this. What word is in every song of this album? It's not a conjunction. Oh, do you, do you know word. this? Yes. Oh my God. It's almost always in the first stanza too. Jesus Christ. I have, I have no idea. What is it? The word is you. There's much speaking to a person, and I think, you know, in my mind, it's the same person throughout. Is that the case? Uh, it is the case. It is the case. So this is a whole album about your broken heart and trying to get back with someone? Well, I mean, that that's definitely kind of where a lot of songs start. And I think, you know, for creative license, you have to be able to kind of, you know, leave reality for a bit as well. So it's not, this is not like completely... Completely like autobiographical, but um, yeah, I do think there's something really interesting, especially when you're breaking up uh, with somebody or if you're going through a breakup, the, you have all these conversations in your head, you know, that you want to have with them and you're kind of playing out dreamlike conversations. Some are sweet, some are sad, some are kind of bitter, some are regretful, you know, like, and you never... And I think, you know, Mike, you've been through a breakup. Everybody listening to this has been through a breakup. And you spend a lot of time in your breakup just having conversations with yourself, imagining how those conversations would go. And then you have your friends that have to listen to you have these conversations. And then the third layer is if you have a rock band, everyone gets to listen to And everyone gets to listen to you. But my friend uh, who was very supportive of me, you know, when I was going through a breakup, he... uh, he, he listened to the record this morning. He was like, this is, honestly, I don't want to relive these conversations that we had to have with you, Max, for the last four months. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I do think um, there's something very interesting about the conversations you never get to have with somebody. You know, because you're trying to give each other space. You're trying to yes. be respectful. and But you still want to, you know, kind of have a back and forth, but you, you can't. So these songs sort of allowed me to kind of do that. So what's the, uh, the pass, the edit that you do to make all that interesting to an audience you know i think it comes down like I, I, what i'm i'll interrupt there's one um way of thinking that's just be honest just put your emotional truth into it but then there's another way of thinking which i think uh, is probably true well you have to you just can't barf out on a page all your feelings you know it has to have some sort of structure that other people can connect to well i think there's there's two parts to this answer the first part is 
lyrically, it's like, you know, do I have the tools to write an interesting song? And I know, Mike, you wrote a really nice little review of our song Laundry Pile, how it's a country song. And I was actually yeah. thinking about country music and sort of the structure of a country music song and the craft of a songwriting of a country music song. So if you go through our song Skin. I like your skin, but you don't want to hear it. Rolling your eyes when my heart's on my sleeve. And I love your skin when we're old and dancing. Just give me a look when you're ready to leave. It ain't song about you're making an observation about the person's skin and the intimacy of somebody else's skin that you know really really well and how you like it at any time of day or if they're hung over or if they're cold or if they're hot and then you know you kind of get to the metaphor of well beauty's only skin deep you know it's like uh you know do you like the thing underneath the person's skin and then the last roundup is well i want skin in the game so it's like i feel like country yeah. music does that thing where it's like okay i've been i haven't been as committal as i probably need to okay how do i tie the thing i set off the top of the song to the hook of the final part of the chorus. So I think the, the first part of the answer is just like, do you have the craft to try to like tell a story, you know, instead of just, as you say, barfing something out. The second part is, and this relates a lot to the band, is like, how do we represent the music as good as possible to what the songs are about? And we have a tendency historically, and this is one of the things I love about our band, is to build up uh, all of our ideas into these big bombastic, peppy sing-along anthemic songs that's always been a, yes, the mo anthemic is the arkells you book tim horton stadium and everyone sings along. <laughs> yeah and we love that and i love that about our band but on this particular record first of all we have seven records that sound that have those uh tent poles so it's <laughs> like right. you know for this record can we not do that can we keep them in their most humble and raw form and the minute we started to get carried away with production stuff, Anthony, our keyboard player, is so good. He was like, take it back, strip it back, take it out, take that out, take that out, take that out. Because if you listen to a lot of great singer-songwriter music, it's very simple a lot of the time. You know, if you listen to Neil Young, it's just a voice and a guitar. If you listen to Lumineers, it's just a kick drum and an acoustic guitar. So I, the, song, the songs do uh, build in certain moments, but we really try our best to kind of keep it as minimal as possible, for at least for us. So I want to know, as a music maker in 2023, is this happening to you? Because it's happening to me as a listener. It happens all the time. I hear a song, and of course, songs are influenced by other songs, and there are certain chord progressions that just uh, go back through time and history. But then we have these lawsuits, and we have Pharrell and Ed Sheeran, and Pharrell lost... Uh, Ed Sheeran beat the estate of Marvin Gaye, I guess you could say. But I have been reading a lot about how especially the uh, successful estate of Marvin Gaye suit put a chill in music writing. And people like Ed Sheeran talked about it during the trial. We spent the last eight years talking about two songs with dramatically different lyrics, melodies, and four chords, which are also different and used by songwriters every day all over the world. These chords are common building blocks which were used to create music long before Let's Get It On was written and will be used to make music long after we are all gone. They are in a songwriter's alphabet, our toolkit, and should be there for all of us to use. No one owns them, all the, all the way they are played, in the same way that nobody owns the color blue. And then when I listen to songs on this album, the first song, I immediately hear something that sounds a little bit like Unchained Melody. And I say, oh no, is Max going to get sued? I don't think so for a number of reasons, but does any of what's been going on 
in terms of these lawsuits affect you or at least just flit across your consciousness as a songwriter? No, you know, this I think more speaks to my personality. I think um, to get sued, you have to have like a a top five song in the world. It's got to be worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think if we, if one of these songs ended up being a top five song in the world, I'd be like, this is a great problem to have. You know, if somebody took a bunch of the money from our top, I wouldn't even care because, you know, it would put our band on a different level. But it's funny you say that. I thought you were going to say the first song reminded you of Hallelujah. Well, it does. Italia, the right and wrongs, the highest highs, the saddest songs. Make mistakes along the way. Hold me on my darkest day If no one knows anyone anything If life's a bit of everything Can I share this bit of everything with you? Life is sweet Sometimes your love will show when I'm right on time which is what we were trying to rip off. <laughs> but I try not to. You know how uh, when you do evaluations in the NBA and it's every time a white guy comes in, they get compared to Larry Bird. I try not to yeah, do yeah. the Canadian to Canadian comparison. Yeah. I don't like to say yeah, Oh, thank guys. you. I appreciate it. Well, speaking of Canadian to Canadian, there's a, we have a song called Wash Away on the record. And the, and the pre-chorus is, is just a Neil Young nod. I'm still in love with you. I'm not ready to let go. I couldn't if I tried I know you said you're moving on And you can't change what's inside I dream of one more chance It's all I can do today You're drawing lines in the sand And I'm just hoping they might wash away It's basically the same part. And I sometimes do the thing where I talk about it publicly, just kind of dangling it there because the idea of getting sued by Neil Young would be so satisfying or Neil Young's people because we have something kind of fun to talk about. Like I kind of, I would enjoy that conversation a lot. And, and, and another thing that happens is you just, music is, uh, it echoes with other music. It's supposed to. So in Laundry Pile, I hear there's a certain Hold Steady song that I could play it for mm. you. I'm sure you'd hear it. But it's just that, after, I, th I would say my top three listens in life are uh, Springsteen, Arkells, and The Hold Steady. So if I listen to them long enough, I'm going to hear you. If I listen to you long enough, I'm going to hear Bruce. And of course, Bruce somehow throughout time went forward and ripped off some uh, Arkells song from 2023, I'm sure. Hey, do you know, do you know Craig at all from The Hold Steady? Yes, yes. He's okay. been on the show and we've interviewed him. Okay, that's okay. Well, I, I don't know him personally, but I'm a huge fan. Um and our song Leather Jacket, which is which is our biggest song probably, he has a song from his 2012 solo record. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Mike, called When No One's Watching. Do you yeah. know that song? There's something yeah, in the way so. she told the story. Anyway, that I was obsessed with that song, and that completely informed like the verse of Leather Jacket. Um, and, and we owe him that, uh, cause it, they're totally different songs, but there's something about the rhythm of the way he sings and the way the band is playing that completely inspired me for Leather Jacket. And to think that that's a bad thing. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did you cover, did you follow that trial at all? I can't imagine any musician, singer, songwriter, not being really appalled at, um, okay, perhaps on the one level you want Marvin Gaye and the, and the estate to get their due, but not to be really 
not just rooting for Ed Sheeran to win that suit, but appalled at the implications. Well, you know, I mean, it goes, it kind of goes with saying it wasn't artist to artist, really. It was just in the estate. So it's like, I think most artists, and there's probably a few that might disagree, but I think a lot of artists just know that that's the nature of it. Like, you know, Neil Young, like Mr. Soul sounds like a Rolling Stone song, which sounds like a Stevie Wonder song, which sounds like a, you know what I mean? Like, and any musician who's writing music just knows that you're just part of a lineage of other songs. But if you're somebody's like son or nephew or niece and you're entitled to their estate, you don't have any feel for that. You just want some money. So it's like I know I think most musicians uh, you know, would understand. But I think people outside of the creative process wouldn't totally get it. Yeah. I think of that Sam Smith song that definitely borrowed from, let's say borrowed from Tom Petty. Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're all I need. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. And on the one hand, I love both those songs. I wouldn't want the Sam Smith song not to exist. I guess the solution was to credit Tom Petty as a uh, singer-songwriter. But again, Tom Petty's not here. His estate is here. Mm -hmm. They're pursuing their monetary interests. We don't know what Tom Petty would say. I would think he would say something like, good, you know, good. I'm glad I, I don't think you're just ripping off my work. I'm glad I inspired this song that actually went higher on the charts than my song ever did. And And I think there's probably some room for like, I don't know, what's the interpolation credit where it's just like, okay, we're going to give you 5% or something. But like when they start really going after everything, it's always just like a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. And the other thing is when you read a Katy Perry credits list, because she knows she's likely to make one of those top five songs in the world, there are 14 credited singer songwriters and half of them, not half of them, but a portion of them are someone who contributed like if you listen to four minutes in there's a little trill that comes from some 70s song and it wasn't even lifted directly from the track it was just clearly inspired by that 70s song i don't know it just becomes more of a factory and a uh, assembly line than i think even billion selling pop music should be yeah. Yeah. You know, on, on one hand, I do, I do kind of get that there are writers in, you know, we know a few of them that we worked with a few of them uh, in LA that really depend on getting, you know, 5% of a Selena Gomez song and that really helps pay their rent. Yeah. So I, so I, I do sympathize. One of the fellows that we worked with on our last record, he, he has a cut on the Camille Cabello record and, and, and he helped and he was actually a big part of it. He helped write the, the track itself, like, um, the instrumental part of it. But yeah, so so I, I oh, well, do. Oh, that's different, right? That's yeah. his labor. That's you know, not just oh, I got this inspiration, and yeah, you're right. It was probably in my head. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think everything's a little contextual, but uh, broadly speaking, yeah, the, the 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 knives are out for the big dogs for sure. So that's one way to make money on music, which is uh, always hard. Uh, there's Spotify plays. There's actual people buying your album. Um, there's live shows. And then I saw they used one of your songs in the, uh, in, in Adam Sandler's 
go to hell and don't come to my bat mitzvah movie. What was the name <laughs> you're of that? Not you are definitely me, yeah. not coming to me. Yeah. Do you get to sign off on that? Do they come to you and you say, of course? What's that negotiation like? Well, this story is actually kind of interesting because we, you know we've had our song placed in different TV shows and movies and commercials over the years. And usually it's not a personal, it's like, you know, it's not a personal thing. They might hear the song and some someone who's in charge of the music puts it in. Last summer, I ran into Adam Sandler's assistant at a Dua Lipa concert. And okay. and Adam Sandler was filming that movie in Toronto. And she was a big fan. And she said, you should come to set. So we went to set. And we got to watch uh, him kind of direct his daughter. And and it was the, the scene that they were doing was only was about six seconds of the movie. But it was this huge, like, elaborate bar mitzvah, but mitzvah scene that you see briefly off the top of the movie. Anyway, had a nice conversation with him. He was really funny. He was asking questions about the band. He's a big basketball fan. We were talking about basketball. Um, and, uh, a, a week later, his, his assistant said, okay, we, Adam needs some hip surgery for, uh, cause he's been playing so much basketball. Do you, you know, the Raptors? Cause I know Nick nurse. He's a friend of a friend of the band, friend of mine. Yeah. Former coach he said, of the Raptors. Could you put yeah. me in touch with, uh, the, the doctor of the Raptors, Adam's going, <laughs> he, he needs, huh. he needs just to see somebody briefly before he has hip surgery. I was like, um, and it turns out that my childhood friend, uh, one of my best friends who I grew up playing baseball and basketball with, and he lived literally behind my house. Uh, he's the, the Toronto Blue Jays team doctor. So he said, I'll see Adam, no problem. So a few weeks later, I got a text from him. Oh, I just saw Adam, really nice guy. So a couple of these little things happen. And then two weeks later, we, we get uh, an email from Happy Madison, his production company, saying, hey, we'd love to use your song Past Life in the movie. I'm sick of running from a past life. I don't care about the next one. Am I running from the moment? Or the city where I come from? Right now I'm feeling like a stranger. Don't recognize the voice inside my head. Cause I've been running from a past life. Couldn't have been a coincidence. Like Adam seemed to do a menchy thing where it's like, oh, I like yeah. that guy. Okay, he might have he put me in touch with his buddy doctor, and you know, okay, let's see if there's a spot for one of the songs in the movie. And then about nine months it passes, and you know, we don't really think of anything of it. And when it comes to these songs uh, placements, you don't know when uh, or if it's actually going to happen until it's out. So yeah, the movie comes out, and we hear, okay, it's going to be in it, and but we again, we don't know like what scene it's going to be in for how long, if it's going to be a very passive thing or like an instrumental part of the movie. And it turns out to be like the most pivotal part of the movie. It's like when his daughter is finding out that her best friend is kissing another boy. And that is the song they use. So it was very cool. And and I want to give full credit to Adam Sandler. He's just as great as everybody thinks he is. And uh, he didn't have to do this menchy thing, but he did. Max Kerman is one of the hosts of the Best Hang podcast, uh, the aforementioned podcast, and his new album with Arkells is Laundry Pile, out now. You could also catch him in certain bot mitzvah-themed Netflix shows. Max, great talking to you again. Hey, and also, I just want to say, uh, we're, in, we're in New York and New Jersey. We're going on tour at the uh, end of September into October. So if you're, any, if you're a gist listener out there, say mm -hmm. hi at the show, because yes. nothing makes me happier than connecting with the just listener because it happens often and people go you listen to this i listen to this and, and then we have a bond immediately so please please come say hello all right thank you max you said i really shouldn't be here but i couldn't wait to see you there's nobody that looks at me the way you do i don't want no other lover now i just want you 
Can we just breathe? Can we just see? Can we just freeze this moment? Babe, I never wanna let you go. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. Yesterday in Arizona, President Biden, in his whispery way, spoke up for democracy itself. This is the United States of America. This is the United States of America. And although I don't believe even a majority of Republicans think that, the silence is deafening. The silence is deafening. The silence is deafening, but the hush delivery is a little disappointing. Don't you wish you could have a commander-in-chief who would command the moment? I shouldn't have to want a military leader to deliver the words that General Mark Milley did deliver during his departure ceremony today, but I would love to hear more people hear the words loud and clear. We don't take an oath to a country. We don't take an oath to a tribe. We don't take an oath to a religion. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. Hell yeah. But I shouldn't dock points for saying necessary things in a less than urgent manner. Let's listen to the substance of what Biden was really calling for. Let me begin with the core principles. Democracy means rule of the people, not rule of monarchs, not rule of the money, not rule of the mighty. Regardless of party, that means respecting free and fair elections, accepting the outcome, win or lose. And democracy means respecting the institutions that govern a free society. Huh. And that all got me to thinking, of course, Biden's right. And there was also, there were many other parts. We cut out a brief part where he says political violence is undemocratic and must never be normalized to advance political power. But think beyond the obvious references to January 6th. Think about what a true commitment to representative government means. It would include things like true voter access, fighting voter suppression. Now, Biden did reference that, but it would include persuasion, not intimidation. There was a lot of anti-intimidation talk, not a lot of affirmation of persuasion. But also, a true representative government would consist of capable lawmakers who really represent the people. And if Democrats want to be the party of that, and they do, they earnestly do, they can't just do the easy thing of opposing the horrific. I think they would bolster their credibility by doing the difficult thing of endorsing what's right, even if their interests or their sense of etiquette is at stake. Which brings me to the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein. She is rightly being lauded and eulogized as a 
towering political figure. I have, in the past, endorsed her methods and her policy stances. But in the last year or so, we saw, we all saw, if we were paying attention, an appreciable decline. And in the last couple of months, she was absent from the Senate convalescing and not doing her job and denying 40 million Americans their representation in the Senate. She wasn't on committees, she missed important votes, and when she came back, it was sad. This was in May, when reporters asked her about her return, and she didn't even realize she'd been gone. What has the response from your colleagues been like? What have the well wishes? What have you heard? What have I heard about what? About your return. How have they felt about your no, return? No, I haven't been gone. Okay. Um, you should follow me. I haven't been gone. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Please, either know or don't know. Progressive reformers will point to the Senate as an inherently undemocratic institution. It is. Each resident of Wyoming has 66 times the franchise as each resident of California. And here was California throwing away what relatively little representation they had. When asked about this, here's what a few other Democratic members of the California congressional delegation said. Uh, she deserves the respect to, to get well and be back uh, on duty. And uh, I, I just, it's, it's interesting to me. I don't know what political agendas are at work that are going after Senator Feinstein in that way. I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way. That was Nancy Pelosi in April. Here was Representative Ted Lieu in May. Senator Feinstein came back last week and she voted. And that was very good. And so we expect her to uh, have conversations with her doctor and do whatever she thinks is best uh, for her and the constituents she represents. It was clear Feinstein was not up to the job. And I understand it's hard to push out a colleague or disrespect such an important figure or maybe even just give critics a toehold. But it was abundantly clear that Feinstein could not do the job. In July, Feinstein signed documents giving power of attorney to her daughter. She was acknowledging that in her personal life, she could not be trusted to fully execute matters of finance, but she was still authorized to vote on billion-dollar spending bills and to hold hearings on matters of vital U.S. interest. Still, no one said when she agreed to let her daughter take care of her personal checking account, no one said publicly, Diane, it's time. Now, if you want to be the party of a representative democracy, you'd advance the notion by, if need be, breaching etiquette or maybe appearing momentarily unkind. But you have to publicly advocate such an obvious step, I would think. What would doing so do? You might get some criticism, but in the long run, you'd help to establish a norm, a norm for your party. You'd put some pressure on the other party because contrary to what Nancy Pelosi says, people do say this about men. And I think of three Republican men they said it about or are saying it about Mitch McConnell, Thad Cochran. This was said about a couple of years ago, quite accurately. Strom Thurmond. By the time he was a latter nonagenarian, this charge was always made. And when you do so, you give yourself credibility. You say, hey, we're the party that did force out the senator or 
encourage the senator who was experiencing obvious decline and couldn't do the job. We told that senator to leave. We have the credibility on that issue. And then therefore, the next time a similar senator is charged with being in that position, you could say, no, 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 no. We did that with Feinstein. This is not the case. I don't know. I can think of certain other high profile Democratic politicians that such credibility might pay off if you were to establish your bona fides. But of course, the most important thing is you would no longer steal representation from the people, the voters who deserve representation, which was the entire point of Biden's speech. I do understand it's hard. I do understand it's not the kind of choice like, should we or shouldn't we egg on those who assault police officers in the Capitol? But that is the point. It is a hard choice. Biden was right in Arizona, but he and his fellow D.C. Democrats were generally wrong and a bit cowardly on Dianne Feinstein. It was a missed opportunity, one that will be probably subsumed today in the next few days by the news of Feinstein's passing and the sense that this is an issue that has been resolved by the fates. But I would like to see the Democrats, as dedicated as they profess to be, not leaving it to fate. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pascasiello of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. Why should she still be serving as a senator? Well, I leave it to her. I told you I'm, I'm the most uh, subjective human being in the world on this topic. I have no objectivity whatsoever. I've known Diane Feinstein since I was a kid. I interned with her in college, still have a signed book uh, uh, from my days uh, when she was mayor. So, More like family. Yeah.